And welcome to the Hoddle Cast. Today we have very special guest Sam Ock. Um, Sam's been working at uh, Hodder Law Firm as legal analyst and helping out with you know everything basically. And uh, Sam, I always appreciate your work. Um, can you, I guess, just give a little introduction of yourself and and how you got involved in Bitcoin, and then we'll dive into today's topics. Yeah, totally. So great to see you. Glad we could actually have a conversation outside of business hours around uh, you know something we both care about. But uh, my entrance into this space was a while ago now, but still not quite as long as a lot of people. I got involved back in 2016 after watching CNBC, and you know the big debate back then was is Bitcoin going to surpass gold at a thousand dollars? And you know the commentators are going back and forth. What's the value of Bitcoin? All this stuff. And I remember back 2012, probably when it was around maybe 50 bucks, and I, I could just do the math. I, I saw the return there, and I was like, "Wow, this is amazing! Like, what, what, what's actually going on here? What, what's the deal?" And it, this time was also right around the time that Ethereum had just gotten uh, hacked, or the DAO, Ethereum itself hadn't gotten hacked, but the DAO had gotten hacked, and so that was in the news a lot too, kind of as like. The Bitcoin competitor, and you know, I got I went really deep down the rabbit hole on Ethereum first. Bitcoin was my entrance. Ethereum was kind of like what got the ball rolling because I was coming at it from an accounting perspective, and the idea of automated smart contracts and like kind of automated accounting was super interesting. Uh, but then, you know, with the block wars and the Bitcoin cash fork, I think it was over. Was that over the summer of 2017? I, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that got that brought me back to Bitcoin, where I was got I got really interested into Austrian economics, monetary policy, limited supply, you know all the things that make Bitcoin great. Because you know what a lot of people had argued in the Ethereum community originally was that Bitcoin could just get replicated, and it's like yeah, surely it could. But the thing is that when it comes to scarce value, the only real way to ensure scarcity is in a human-created way. Like, gold is scarce, but we don't actually know how scarce. We just keep pulling gold out of out of the earth. We know there's only 21 million Bitcoin. Uh, and so first, the, the thing that is scarce has to be created by man. And then it, how protected is that thing from actually changing? Like, how sacred is that cow? And Bitcoin's community has proven time and time again that that cow is as sacred as it gets. So, you know, we, we got scarce value or we've got value being created by people. And then the community of people that are in charge of maintaining that scarce value, how ardent are they about maintaining that? And I don't think you can find a community anywhere in the world that is more, uh, you know, in love or passionate about that idea than, than Bitcoiners. And I, I think that gets overlooked a lot. I, I don't think people break it down quite to that granular granular level uh and and that's why i mean i i I love bitcoin you you and i have both been compensated in bitcoin you know we're we're all about bitcoin as as money so that that, that's my long-winded way of saying i got involved in 2016 (laughs) that was great yeah and and the scarcity you're right like this i don't i don't think there's anything else out there any anything even remotely like this in terms of uh 
Yeah, I always worried when they were starting the ETFs and things like that, like, oh, is it going to get, you know how they say like one ounce of gold, there's, I don't know how many, you know, ounces are being traded based on that each ounce. So we might see that in the future with Bitcoin where like uh, it gets just these crazy trading like that are linked back to the each Bitcoin, but it does, I don't think it matters because the, the core is uh, our 21 million. Yeah, so for today, uh, I guess we're going to talk about the, the you know, the Warren bill is starting to, you know, it's going through today, more people are signing it, and we're just going to have kind of a general discussion around sanctions and whether crypto and Bitcoin in particular can be used to evade sanctions and uh, and then look at Biden's order, the executive order from last week, the SEC's comments on NFTs, the uh, Virginia banking legislation, and then the EU uh, MECA legislation. So um, Sam helped write the, the newsletter that the law firm released um, just uh, this morning. So the, the topics are fresh on both our minds. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I guess like what do you make what do you make of the the Russian sanctions and the I think they're called the harmful foreign activity sanctions. Yeah, I mean I you know the situation that's going on in Ukraine and you know what Russia is doing there is obviously it's it's disappointing, it's sad, it's it's so many things and I know that there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that that think that either we're, we're doing too much or too little. Uh, and I feel like Biden is really trying to kind of meet that middle ground where he's leveraging as much as he possibly can. And this is this is the NATO you know, community as a whole uh, without actually putting boots on the ground and, and really like, you know, taking a stand and declaring war on Russia. Now, whether that's right, wrong or how you feel about that is a totally different conversation. But if we look at the things that have been done and we look at uh, the, the sanctions that have been put in place, I think that the thing that is telling about, you know, how far people or, you know, uh, countries outside of Ukraine are willing to go is the fact that they cut Russia off from SWIFT. Uh, And I I don't think people outside of the financial um, industry understand how big of a deal that is and and really how the global financial system works, how it's it's denominated in dollars. You you look at um, the types of trade that get conducted over the world. You look at the reserves held in international federal reserves in different countries or the, uh, the um, national banks uh, in you know, many different countries. And the, the dollar is really king, uh, which you know, a lot of Bitcoiners have a problem with. They can, there's, there's issues around that. But at the end of the day, when you cut somebody off from SWIFT, which is really the, the U.S. interbank communication system, you're basically cutting off the lifeline to a country's financial freedom, their, their you know, ability to you know, conduct trade with the rest of the world. Now, uh, what impact does that have on Russia? Well, the, the major one is that you aren't able to do business outside of your country. And, and Russia is actually you know, tiny as far as uh, GDP goes and its percentage. I believe it's 1%. Like it, it's about 1% of the total world's economic output. Like it, it's not large at all. Uh, and a lot of that go- comes from exports and you know doing business with other countries. So you cut them off from SWIFT, and you don't have the inflow of capital that you used to have. And you know, in addition to that, you've got a, a ton of different companies pulling out of Russia. You've got a ton of different organizations who are not willing to you know, 
do uh, business in Russia. And I think it's really going to set the Russian people back. I think a lot of the sanctions are targeted towards creating social unrest. You know, the financial sanctions themselves are really meant to, you know, anger the people of Russia so that they put pressure on their leadership to, you know, stop, stop causing chaos in Ukraine. So, you know, I, I think that it's a roundabout way. Me personally, I, you know, I think that we should be doing more. Um, but as far as the sanctions go, I'd say that the, the real big one is, is the uh, kind of booting from the SWIFT system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agreed. And uh, and even just looking at all the all the companies that are cutting off services too, it's like three hundred Western companies have just stopped doing business. I was reading one thing that said like they're gonna run out of IT cloud storage in a matter of you know weeks. And I was just thinking, it's you know, it, sure the sanctions are great for you know for on the swift side things like that or you know maybe to avoid world war three like nuclear you know this is a lesser measure but god it's got to be hard on the people um that you know might not really agree with their government with you know anything that their government's doing um and now they just have no services they're probably you know food shortages things like that going on um well, yeah. I, I think what surprised a lot of people outside of Russia is how much of a, a vice grip Putin has on power and, and on propaganda and like what people in that country see. Because there's countless stories of, of people in Russia not not understanding what's going on, not knowing what's actually happening in Ukraine. I mean, there's examples of newscasters going off script and, and running out onto news sets saying, like, don't believe the propaganda. You know, we, we are at war with Ukraine. We are invading Ukraine. And I, you can only imagine what Russia or what Putin is telling the entire country. Because I, I have a friend who is from Russia who has family in Russia, and he, he's saying to me, you know, man, I, it's super disappointing for me because this is going to set Russia back, you know, decades. I mean, I, I mean the, the, the harm that this is doing to that country is just amazing. And, and like, this is all, you know, without saying the, the devastation that's going on in Ukraine, like that, that goes without saying, you know, that that's, yeah. everything that's going on there is horrible. But from a like actual country standpoint, the, the impact that the invading country, the impact to the invading country is going to be massive here. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, like, so the OFAC sanctions were put in place, you know, they blocked all the banks and certain individuals, but but not the individual people, like the Netflix shutting down for the individual people, that's on their own, on their own choice to, to you know, make their stand. Um, but the crypto exchanges didn't do that. Like, uh, have you been following, you know, what, what Kraken did? Yeah, I, uh, from, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, you know, the U.S. said, you can't be dealing with insert with certain people, uh, and there was a, a call from the Ukraine to say, you know, not just certain people, but all people from Russia should be prevented from actually accessing a lot of these services. I, I believe that uh, the CEO of Kraken, I forget his name right now, but he Jesse Powell, De- yeah. Jesse Powell. There we go. Uh, I was going to say Jerome Powell, and I'm like, that's not the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he. Um, yeah, he was saying that, you know, like, we're going to comply with U.S. sanctions, but like we're, we're only going to cut off the people that we have to. Like, and, and, you know, that, that runs deep in the Bitcoin and crypto community as a whole around self-sovereignty, it, you know, being an individual, having individual autonomy. And it's, it's something that 
a, that has run deep in this industry from the very beginning. And, and it came up, you know, in another example when Trudeau cut off the bank accounts of the truckers and, you know, mm-hmm. asked ask exchanges to freeze crypto accounts to re- related to people who were doing crowdfunding activity for those truckers. Yeah. And uh, like he I think Jesse must have come under a lot of pressure, but he put out a tweet saying basically that they they're distributing all the profits they make from the Russian people to to the Ukraine, uh, you know, Bitcoin donation fund. Um, So so I think they I think they raised over over 10 million dollars for it, Um, which is, you know, that's enough to be pretty helpful in Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's uh, certainly, I think, more good to be had than bad. But I mean, I don't want to get too political with talking about it. But I, I, I was pretty impressed with, with how Kraken responded there. And then, um, you know, so everyone was so worried that, or you know, it was just a big topic of discussion. Like, are they going to be able to use, use crypto to evade all these sanctions? And then is it going to ca- cause, you know, some negative impact onto our industry by, like, over-regulating it or creating new regulations to try and avoid that? Or, you know, the, those are always the fears. And, uh, and then FinCEN came out and said, that it's really not possible that all the all the data that they have from the various exchanges uh, in the crypto side, just crypto in general, like they, you know, with blockchain forensics, you can really trace and it's not super anonymous. And even if even if people can use unhosted, um, you know, KYC list services, when when the, that money needs to get cashed out, it's it's uh, through a bank. So at some point it gets um get seen. But yeah, FinCEN came out with that, uh, you know, guidance or, you know, a notice saying that they didn't think it was it was being used too much. But then we saw that bill from uh, Elizabeth Warren. Have you have you been following that? Uh, a little bit. Could, could you give me the you know, high level of, of what the bill actually is talking about? Yeah, basically like her. Well, it's a bill now. It's asking exchanges uh, to to either basically choose to do business in the U.S. or Russia, and I haven't read every every word of it. I've just seen you know some posts on Twitter today that it's it's starting to get more support. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't you know doesn't go very far. But uh, it's you know she wrote that letter to to secretary to, to secretary Yellen, and then that there was supposed to be a response to that on March twenty third, and then this bill comes out you know even before the response is due. So. Um, yeah, yeah I, I remember that letter. Uh, and you know, there's a lot to unpack there. First off, I gotta say, I'm really glad that, um, the FinCEN has been on top of that and, you know, it is intelligent enough to, to make that distinction. I think that's a, you know, super common misconception, really old narrative around this space where Bitcoin is only being used for nefarious purposes. And in reality, Bitcoin is actually, and other cryptocurrencies are a really bad way to actually conduct those transactions because they're traceable. They're, you know, there's companies like Elliptic or um, Chainalysis is probably the most famous that is that like goes into the data and tracks where the flow of funds have occurred and from what address to what address uh, those transactions have been going. So first, you can actually track that information. Second, 
you are able to, if you want to pull Bitcoin out of a blockchain-based system and get fiat-based money, so U.S. dollars, the, the ruble, you know, whatever it is, whatever you know, government-issued money that you're looking to transact in, you need to go through a centralized exchange. Due to a whole bunch of different laws, centralized exchanges are required to KYC AML, know your customer, and provide anti-money laundering you know, processes in place so that they know who's operating on their exchange. So first, the funds on a blockchain are easily tracked. Second, in order to actually pull them off of an exchange to be useful, because, you know, unfortunately, Bitcoin isn't easily used as money today. You know, I, we accept payments, but like, it's not common. So if you want to actually make payments using this technology, you need to transfer it into a money that most people are willing to accept. That's done through centralized exchanges. So if you're somebody on one of these hot lists, then you're not going to be able to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that that like, level of understanding is understood by a government agency because we're seeing other agencies like uh, or other departments like the SEC um, coming out or bureaus uh, coming out with some statements that shows that they don't quite understand or, or know how to bridge that gap. So it's one of those things where I think that Elizabeth Warren is coming at it from a very political standpoint. And unfortunately, I think we're going to see cryptocurrencies becoming very political in the United States. You see Ted Cruz speaking at CPAC, where he talks about the importance of actually being allowing people to custody their own assets, to actually you know, have self-sovereignty. And that's something that has traditionally been a part of the conservative mindset. I don't say Republican because I have this thing where Republican is a party. Party's stances on issues change over time. So, like, if you look at the core philosophical belief in the conservative side of politics, then the self-sovereignty, libertarianism, those are core policies and core beliefs there. And if you look at the more liberal side, and I don't even like the word liberal because, like, if you look at traditional liberals, liberal is short for, like, libertarian or, like, the, the idea of – and you know, go back and define what a liberal was at the founding of our country. It's not what we define as a liberal today. But you know, the narrative over there is one of these are unregistered securities. These are you know making the wealthy wealthier. This is you know allowing people to avoid sanctions. Uh, and I think that what Elizabeth Warren really misses in this is that this is a financial system that allows anybody to get access to capital. It allows anybody to get access to money in a way that has never been possible before. And I think that if they took a step back and they actually looked at this for what it is, then they would see that a lot of the narratives that they are driving or like the lo a lot of the beliefs that that side of the aisle is really pushing forward around equality, around, you know, the, making sure that the, you know, Disappointments of our past where, you know, the United States has done things that are less than optimal and we got to make up for it can be actually rectified through this technology. You know, you talk about I think it's called redlining or red zoning districts from um, low income areas where banks wouldn't lend to lower income areas because of a certain neighborhood. It's like. In, in the Bitcoin and, and decentralized finance ecosystems being built on Ethereum, Cosmos and you know other blockchains, th there isn't any credit scores. There's no skin color. There's nothing. It's just, I've got a Bitcoin. I can get a loan against that Bitcoin because I have value. I, I've got Ethereum. I've got Atom, whatever it is. I'm able to operate in this, in this ecosystem to actually get the financial tools that I need. And, and it's risky. Like we're in the very early innings of this, of this space, but 
if governments would take the time to actually get to understand this, kind of like how Ted Cruz is doing, it sounds like what, you know, what FinCEN is doing and other you know, different areas of the government are doing, then you start to realize that if we encourage this in the right way, if we foster innovation, which kind of ties back to another topic I know you wanted to discuss, which is the executive order. But if, it, if we're able to actually get into that, then we are able to build a society and build tools to help prevent a lot of the things that you know both sides of the aisle care about. But I, I think that a lot of times in, in politics, people buy into narratives more than they buy into actual technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Very well said, Sam, and and nice segue. So, um, what what did you what did you think of the the executive order that came out? It was certainly you know highly anticipated by the crypto community over the last couple couple weeks. We knew it was coming, and, and no one knew exactly what it was going to say. So, um, I think it was a bit of a relief that it wasn't anything uh, you know happening today. But uh, maybe you could give us a little rundown of it. <laughs> Yeah, totally. So the TLDR is that the White House issued an executive order essentially outlining what it would like its departments, agencies, and bureaus to do around virtual currencies and digital assets and, and how they would like to approach them. It was no like strong-handed you know, digital assets or securities or you know, whatever kind of fear, fearful thing we were kind of expecting to come out of that because there was a lot of concern that the the you know executive order would come out and it would say some something very hard-handed. It was really, you know, we're encouraging the SEC to go look at these things. We're encouraging the Department of the Treasury to go check some stuff out. We want the Department of Commerce to go explore these risks. Uh, we want we you know they obviously don't have direct control over the Federal Reserve, but we would encourage the Federal Reserve to go and explore CBDCs and, you know, making sure, and that, not only that though, and I've got to give him some credit because he didn't only say that. He also said, but in doing that, making sure that we are it, including the characteristics of cash, i.e. the anonymity of cash in the design of that CBDC. So it, it was really high level. It wasn't a, a whole lot of like hard, hard and fast rules that he was setting, but it was a lot of encouragement. I mean, I, I, th- I saw that as positive. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. And uh, but one interesting thing is they're, they're looking to see if the if the Fed even has the power to issue a CBDC, which I'm, I would be very surprised if they found out they didn't, you know, like the, I think it probably should come from Treasury rather than the Fed. You know, the Fed is just we get it all into what the Fed is, you know, the creature from Jekyll Island. <laughs> but uh, um but it should anyway. The, they'll probably find that the Fed can do it, and uh, you and I have never really gotten talked about CBDCs too much before. But you know, I'm I'm a little scared of them for for this. You know, the the potential that they could have to to basically like it's. I think Ukraine just be. Um, I saw some tweets that they they put out almost like a CBDC or like a vaccine passport type thing, like a social credit score. Um, you know, just yesterday or to so that's my fear is that what what will come from the the CBDC is it'll everything will be tied into um, it'll be just a lot more centrally controlled and if if you have a low credit score. 
either from, you know, or what, what they call the social credit score, then you won't get access to certain things. Or if you're not vaccinated and that's tied into this whole CBDC thing, you'll, you'll lose complete access to the financial system. And we've seen that in certain, you know, certain uh, areas already kind of being, being in place. So I don't know. It's, uh, it scares me to think of the CBDC coming, but, um, you know, I know there are, there's also some merit to it of like, it's uh, well, maybe you could speak. What, what do you think would be good about the CBDC if they come? Like it's certainly a superior technology, but uh. yeah, certainly a superior technology. Uh, there was a, you know, early on in this space, when I entered this space, there was somebody who said, I want to invest in anything that China hates. And I, I always, I, I laugh at that, but kind of in that same perspective, the fact that China has doubled down so quickly and so fast on a CBDC, and for those who are listening, you know, CBDC stands for Central Bank Digital Currency. So a effectively a, a digital asset issued by a government's central bank. The reason why they've, they've doubled down so quickly on it is because it just gives them so much information. We talked earlier about being able to track Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin's movement on a blockchain. Well, if a government issues a CBDC, then they're going to be able to track all of the U.S. dollars in circulation. So you go buy a cup of coffee, the government's going to know. You decide that you want to transfer, you know, I transfer $100 to, to Sasha and she, you know, maybe it was for something illicit, the government's going to know. So it just gives the government a ton of information. And it begs the question as a society, how much information and how much power do we want a centralized body to actually have? And, you know, there are benefits to CBDCs in the ease of use. You know, you think about the stimulus checks that got deployed by the Trump administration and Biden administrations uh, over covid you know, it would make that process way more seamless. You wouldn't have to get a check in the mail. I and mean, some people got deposits to the account that they paid their taxes with. But realistically, it just it makes things easier. But the flip side of that is, and as with anything, it's a double-edged sword. It also gives the government a ton of power. So I've heard a lot of conversations being had about CBDCs where there is going to be a kind of a two-tiered system. And for those who don't know, Right now, the way that the, the banking system works is that federally chartered banks or state chartered banks can receive funding from the Fed. They, 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 they interact with the Fed, and then the actual bank itself interacts with the consumer. So you have an account with J.P. Morgan, with um, Bank of America, whoever, and then that information is stored at the bank level. In a CBDC world, because of technology, like you know, blockchains were created to basically abstract away the bank. The federal government could issue a currency that just goes direct to consumer, which would give them that insight. But in if you replicate the two-tier system that we have today, where the Fed interacts with banks and then banks interact with customers in a CBDC kind of way, where only banks have accounts with the Fed, and then you have an account with a bank, then there's a little bit more of a layer between you and the federal government. That doesn't mean that the Fed, or sorry, the federal government or the Fed could come in and, you know, demand that the bank hands over your information because that intimate knowledge of what you're transacting and how you're transacting is going to exist somewhere. So all in all, a CBDC could do a lot to really dilute privacy in America in a way that it doesn't currently today. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, big time. I <laughs> just before this call, um, and I'll be pat. You, you'll have to. We'll get you set up with it as well. But I got my first cipher trace uh, logging credentials for like a Bitcoin ATM company, and I was looking through and. It, I, I've known a lot of companies that use CypherTrace, but this was my first time getting right in the dashboard and seeing how they were looking at this wallet. And this is a wallet that like is the machine's wallet, so it funds the Bitcoin, and it's ranked you know a nine, which is like pretty. <laughs> a ten is the worst. And it, the, I asked them, you know, how do how do you come up with that ranking? And this is a wallet that's been doing you know thousands of transactions with all kinds of different people. But as soon as you do a transaction with two tens like two bad transactions. And those people can be eights when you transact with them. Like the, the ATM machines actually won't, tra won't let a 10 wallet transact with it. But if an eight transacts and then they turn into a 10 over time, then your wallet gets automatically becomes scored a nine. So I, when you said that about like, you know, if say you gave me a hundred bucks and then I in turn gave it to someone that was, did something illicit or I did something illicit with it, then, um, you know, you, your wallet would be, uh, you know, and one more time that you do that and then you're scored a nine. And it's like, you might have no idea what I'm going to do with my money. And, you know, with, with the third party doctrine, like the Supreme Court has said, a government needs a warrant to find out that kind of information about your customer's customer. But with this kind of tracking that's available, like that would, uh, you know, on a CBDC, it would be even more so than, you know, than on a Bitcoin ATM. But, you know, that, that it's just so much information where if you were looking at like the phone company in the Supreme Court case of Carpenter, they said that knowing the location data on a cell phone, that's ancillary or it's not the core um you know, yes, you can know the phone numbers. The, the, without a warrant, the government could ask the cell phone provider to give over the phone numbers that the phone called because that's the core service that that the person signed up for. And same with like on Coinbase, you know, when a person signs up there, they know or it's in the terms of service that the government can request for transaction information on that person, but not on the person that they're transacting with. So the government should need a warrant to ask for who's, you know, who's the next, like who is your customer transacting with or what location you're at with your cell phone. Um, you know, those kind of things are, are typically like protected by the Fourth Amendment. But if we go to the CBDC world, um, you know, and at least with a with a Bitcoin wallet, if you if say like what my advice to that Bitcoin operator is going to be get a new wallet, you're ranked a nine, start a fresh one. Um, but with with the CBDCs, it's like we'll never be able to reset our identity because it's linked to our driver's license or our social security number. And, you know, over time in life, like, you know, people's transaction or people change, you know, so yeah. it's like your, your history is going to always follow you around from state to state. And like uh, it's um, I don't know. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a scary, scary direction to be going in, in, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, well, yeah. and that's my biggest concern about politics right now and just you know the, the dialogue in general today is that you're digging up stuff on people from 20 30 years ago and i i think that there is a real big not crime but just like really you, you're, you're missing a lot if you're going to judge someone on the person that they were 20 years ago 
And, you know, people make mistakes. And unfortunately, because of technology, those mistakes get captured over time. And it's super easy to look back and say, oh, my God, this person was a horrible person at a certain point in their life. But who wasn't like worse than they are today in their life? And <laughs> should we really be holding that against them forever? And, and I, I feel like as a society, that's a really slippery slope. And we're going to be missing out some really f amazing people because we're holding them to standards of actions that they took when they were 15 or when they were, you know, 20. I mean, people, people grow up at different rates and they do dumb things at dumb points in their lives. And like, to your point, that that's going to be carried with you forever. And some people want to argue saying, great, you know, like start them when they're young, start people being scared of the actions that they take, but it, it really, it, it, it puts people in check, it, but in a way that doesn't allow them to express themselves. And I feel like you know the most authentic, best way to create a society is to allow people to express themselves as long as it's not to the detriment of others. And you know that that definition right there, that line is how far can I express myself without being de a detriment to others is really the political argument that's being had in our country right now. It, you know the arguments around language about what we can call people, about what we can say where. It, you know it, it's really about where is that line of I want to be a person, I want to make jokes about things that are probably a little bit inappropriate, but funny and you know set a certain mood versus people who are incredibly sensitive to that and, and think that you know you you you, you, you can't attack the sacred cow I keep using sacred cow i've used it twice i gotta stop but you, you know there, there's certain things that you're just not allowed to touch and it's like as a society that's just not natural at least in my opinion so i mm -hmm. i think that if we had a cbdc and to your point if we had that that social credit score or like that credit score that you're talking about and that ranking and that can't get reset or change over time, it's going to be a, a really unpleasant way to live. And I think that China is going to figure that out because they already have this. They already have that social credit score. They've, they've rolled that out. And I, I think that it's just going to be a really unpleasant way to exist. Mm -hmm. And some of the punishments in China for the low credit score are just awful. Like they slow down your internet. Can you imagine? Sometimes on my phone when it's going slow, I just think like, oh, what's to come in the future? Like, you know, this big, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Like, oh, I, can't, I hate slow internet. And if that's one of the things where it's like a, really looking at the Ukraine situation, like, is that what, you know, all these companies immediately cutting off all these innocent Russian people like that didn't have any you know they're not the ones dropping the bombs like they're just trying to live their lives in Russia maybe I don't know them but that's you know they just it's just people uh you know and all of a sudden they can't watch Netflix and they can't uh, use their Apple computer and they they're going to lose access to their lifelong like internet storage of photos and stuff like that is that what's going to happen to the low credit score people once the CBDC is going in place like uh, it, it, yeah. it's a great point and it, you know we come come full circle back to this technology as, as a freedom technology, where, where Bitcoin is a freedom technology. Yeah, where, we missed even talking about the, what, how <laughs> great Bitcoin has done through all this. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, but it, it's one of those things where that, like, that use case is just so, in my mind, heinous 
that it, it kind of brings us back to, to Bitcoin and that open source. Because like what we're talking about would be a permissioned blockchain where like only the, the Fed and the banks on the network would, would be the node operators and tracking this information, whereas Bitcoin totally decentralized. You know, you've got miners doing one thing, you've got nodes doing another thing, you've got, you know, wallet companies, you've got this really diverse ecosystem that is powering this this entire technology that can't be stopped, that can't be censored, that can't be used against people and allows them to move on, like you said, from a different wallet address. Like, you know, a bad credit score gets associated with one wallet address. Hey, I can just spin up another one. And because it's pseudo-anonymous and because anybody can join at any point in time as many times as they want, you're not really beholden to that history of a, of a specific wallet and, and you can kind of move on from, you know, past transgressions. Let's say I used to use a Bitcoin wallet to operate in the Silk Road. Let's just say, you know, I, I was at a phase of my life where I was using drugs and, you know, I'd never encourage this, obviously, but I know a ton of people who, you know, were doing some, some things that, you know, if I was to shine a camera on them at that point in time and play it back to them today, they would say, you know, that isn't the person who I am. That isn't the person who I want to be. But you can never escape that in the CBDC centralized social credit score type of system that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But like uh, to your point, the people in Russia that have Bitcoin and the people in Ukraine that have Bitcoin, like they were able to flee the country with their wealth intact, like in their pocket, you know, and, uh, you know, with even whether the SWIFT system is there or not, uh, they've got their hard drive, they're good to go as long as the Internet is still up. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a opt out from all this, if, if hopefully more services and everything, a whole economy springs up that, uh, that, you know, you can buy and sell things with, with Bitcoin at a wider scale than you can today. But I think that's starting like that Mexico apparently is really open to accepting it. We've seen El Salvador and, uh, um, I mean, yeah. e even in the United States, you've got states that will allow you to pay your taxes in cryptocurrency. I believe Ohio will let you do it. I think Nevada is another state that lets you do it. So you've got Florida Nevada. tried, yeah, but the guy, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty bad story around that. <laughs> God, you've got to tell me. Actually, I'm not familiar with this. So lay it on oh, me. man. So in Orlando, they, they started letting people pay taxes with, with the Bitcoin. But the, um, the office, the guy that was running the program, he actually... Uh, it's uh, a lot that I can't talk about even, but uh, in the end, he got charged with some some sex crimes or like child sex crimes, wow. and uh, <laughs> they shut down the program. But but yeah, it was a real weird situation. Well, I mean, I don't, and I met the guy. You never know what people do or don't do, but I, he didn't seem like that to me. <laughs> but, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I, I, but I, I think that it also highlights the fact that you know. Uh, I, I say that Bitcoin is, is not only used for nefarious acts, but just like the original payments on the Internet were, you know, the, the innovation there came from wanting to be able to pay for porn. You know, financial innovations often start with, with porn or illicit activities. So up until recently, or I'm not even that recently, but up until like, you know, five years ago or, or even three years ago, a lot of people in this space got exposed to it probably in a way that, you know, wasn't like a, a traditionally like white collar type of way. So. Uh, it's not it's not totally implausible that the person that knows how to do this thing also might be into some things that you might not love. So unfortunate situation, but yeah. 
And then um, did you see that letter that some congressmen put out to the SEC yesterday? We didn't talk about this ahead of time, but it was basically like a letter asking the SEC to explain um, its information collection techniques, if it's working with the, uh, I think it's the paper Paperwork Reduction Act, and they have to now, they have like a month to send all the different complaints they've done and the uh, cost-benefit analysis on the people that they've done it to, and it was a really good letter. <laughs> no, I, I did not actually see that, but I'm, I'm glad someone is holding them accountable because I feel like the SEC especially has just been a total loose cannon in this space where they the, their enforcement of the Howey test is just so scattered and they, they won't actually take a stance on, you know, what are the things that you need to do as a company to issue a token that is compliant? Because, you know, the Howey test is one that is timeless and often cited in this space because – it is the traditional way that you establish whether or not a company is issuing something that could be a security. And so, like the Howey test has, has four prongs. You know, the if something for something to be deemed a security, someone needs to have invested money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits derived from the efforts of others. So when you look at token issuance, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that, that can go out and say, hey, you know, nobody invested money, nobody, there isn't a common enterprise. Uh, usually that, that fails because there's oftentimes a common enterprise. Um, you know, th- there was no expectation of profit, or at least you know, in the traditional sense. Uh, and you know, w- are, are you actually deriving that from the in- investment of others? So it's one of those things where if you can come up with a scenario where you and I have both seen many where, like, on paper, it doesn't look like these these things are securities or they don't, like, I guess, fail that or they don't pass that test. Because if you pass that test, then you are a security. So you want to fail that test. So it, it looks like they fail that test. And the SEC won't actually say why they don't fail that test or why they pass that test. Uh, but instead, we'll just continue to bombard them with, you know, subpoenas, with, um, you know, uh, actions, and it, it's just a mess. So I, I would really love to see them come out, and, you know, I, I'm glad that people are applying pressure to them because I think what they're doing in this space is just wrong. And I, I'd love to hear any thoughts that you have on it because I know it's something that we've talked about a bunch. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it's just it's it's just so hard to. I wish there was a way to advise people because so many people, so many companies, or you know, DAOs or anyone that wants to interact with tokens, you know, they they just there's not really a way to do it in America right now, um, except as you mentioned, giving them out for free because it's pretty the and. Uh, uh, some people disagree with that. The SEC might even disagree that if you airdrop it, they're still um, you're still maybe asking them to do something to get some investment of time or something to get the money. But um, I heard Marco Santori on the Laura Shin podcast years ago describe it beautifully. But like, if there's no real investment of capital, then the the Howie t- 
test should should fail. So that's one way to to get tokens into distribution. But any other efforts to sell them, um, you know, it's really it's a big risk that companies take to do that. But it's 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 very selective enforcement because you know you have to. It sucks telling these companies like, oh, sorry, you can't you can't do that. It's against the SEC's rules. But then the SEC prosecutes you know three or four companies a year when there's you know three or four thousand companies doing it each year so it's like uh you know what's your what's your odds of getting an enforcement action but then if you look at the chart of the companies that have received these enforcement actions the ones that just immediately comply and pay a fine and you know accept the order their fines are like on a magnitude of you know five times lower than the companies that end up fighting it and eventually still paying a fine um we haven't really seen any of these get to trial ripple probably be the first one and uh I, I I hate Ripple and the Ripple Army on Twitter. Like for years, you know that I should. I'll probably get a lot of people. Anyone that listens will get mad. Even just saying you hate Ripple sometimes these days, like they just have such a marketing engine out there. But uh, but the case is actually proving to be like a, a really interesting one that probably will be a landmark for. I, I think they'll end up. I don't know. I don't want to speculate on the case, but I think it's putting the pressure on the on the SEC more than they expected when they when they got into that action. But but now they're saying they're going to come after NFTs. Uh, how do you think they'll be able to do that? Well, I, I think that I, I actually think that they have a pretty good case there, at least for certain projects, because if you look at the Howard test, investment of money, if I'm minting an NFT, like I'm, I'm investing money, you could argue that's an investment of money um, in a you know, uh, organization or you know, group of people. A lot of times these NFT projects have companies backing them like Ava Labs or Yuga Labs um, it, for expectation of profit. Now, you can argue that there isn't an expectation of profit if I'm just minting an NFT and I want to hold this board ape. But it's one of those things where, uh, you know, it, it does, is it implied? You know, maybe, maybe Ava Labs is not saying I'm going to make a million dollars if I mint this punk, but look at what's going on in the market. You know, everybody who's minting something or a lot of projects that are minting something, whether it's a doodle or board ape or whatever, is, is just, coming away with a ton of money. So maybe like maybe the project isn't saying that, but like it's it's expected. Um, and off of the efforts of others. And you could argue that the the project's marketing engine, the, the fact that people took time to actually put together the variables that go into an NFT, you could argue that that is an investment of time by other people, of the efforts of other people. So I, I think that depending on how they approach this and depending on who they decide to actually, you know, um, bring action against, they might have grounds. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, when when I first got into crypto, like I I became part of the counterparty community. I, I was playing this Bitcoin farming game where it was uh, it was just like a group of degenerates. Uh, right after the rare Pepe trading had stopped, um, you know, it was a lot of fun in the chat, and that's where I met my husband. And uh, like we all formed these different clans, and it was this game. The game's over now, but like everyone had plots of land, and there were the 
the cards, you know, it was very artistic though. Like it was a bunch of people that were digital artists and each card. So for those, it's like, it really didn't seem like those were akin to securities, but then the crypto kitties came out and then like the prices on them started going crazy. And it's like, uh, you know, the, so the whole saying in the counterparty community, they look at it and they say the token is the art. And if it's, so it, they've always been kind of treated like baseball cards, or that's how, how, how we were looking at them. So the, the same rules of trading a baseball card would, would apply to these things, and it doesn't matter that they're digital. They're, the essence of them is a baseball trading card, and that's a good or a service, and the SEC doesn't have jurisdiction over, the, over that sale. Um, but it's, it's a fine line. So I think that's what it's going to have to come down to is like, are these goods or services or are they just, um, you know, crypto tokens like anything else? And if they're crypto tokens like anything else, the FinCEN rules would apply too, because FinCEN has the same exemption for goods or services. So no one's needing KYC for the NFT space right now because they're not, uh, you know, being treated like exchanging of crypto assets, which, which does require like that MSB registration. So um, maybe if, if all that money and, you know, uh, stuff hadn't come in, it was a beautiful thing while it was lasting. But then I, I have a feeling they're, the, the SEC at least can argue that they're more akin to other crypto assets than they are to um, goods or services. I don't know. I hope not, though. I, I like the NFT world the way it is. I don't want the, all this regulation coming in. And I think, you know, uh, the free market can regulate itself, although we have seen a lot of the, the SEC's probably gotten a lot of complaints from people that have been you know, rug sub victims of rug pulls, or we saw all the technical problems on the um, open sea, like where there's been bugs and stuff like that. So uh, as soon as someone loses money, I, I've, I've gotten so many calls over the years of just like, hey, this happened. Can you say that it's in a, uh, like, and no one likes the securities uh, rules until they want to use them in their favor to try and sue someone. And then they're like, hey, they broke the law because that's a security and they should have been registered. So let's sue him. And, I, you know, we don't do that kind of litigation. You know, I, it's just not uh, not something I, I've really worked on. But uh, but it's there. And I'm sure that there's lawyers out there, you know, that are happy to charge someone to write a letter to the SEC and say, hey, like this needs regulation because X, Y and Z happened to my client. And that shouldn't have happened. And this exchange should have been registered as a national securities exchange. And if they were, they would have been following certain rules that would have avoided this loss. Um, so... Well, yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people might not realize is going on is that there's a massive land grab going on right now at a at a federal regulatory level around who's responsible for these assets. You've got the OCC, you've got the SEC, you've got CFTC. And one of the things that was missing, and I'm going to give a shout out to my guy, Jamison Seitz over at RSM, a uh, company I used to work for. He's their uh, national uh, blockchain tax lead. Uh, he pointed out that what was super surprising about the executive order is that there is no real indication or request by the White House to the IRS to outline more specifically how to treat digital assets from a tax perspective. Because right now, 
the IRS considers everything property, everything that's tracked as a virtual currency. And, and they use these very broad terms like virtual currency. All right, like, so what's a virtual currency? And, and they give you some definitions for it, but it's like anything tracked on a blockchain. It's like, well, you know, I'm tracking – what blockchains track is value. So if I'm tracking the value of a home on a blockchain or a value of a stock, then, like, you've got different tax rules for each one of those things in the traditional sense, but if it's tracked on a blockchain, then, you know, they're, you know, it's all, it's all property. So it's one of those things where what we're going to see, or I hope to see over the next year or two, because I think this is needed, this was needed two years ago, five years ago, is just real delineation between, you know, what agency is responsible for what, and, you know, what, what characteristics do something need to have to be considered, you know, under the, in the traditional framework where does it fall and, and how should we be treating it? Because what is, I think, a big constraint to this industry right now is that you've got some really smart people, really great Web2 people, really great traditional institutions. Because like, let's, let's just take a second here and acknowledge that at one point, the institutions that we had today were the innovators of yesterday. So over time, those really innovative companies become the institutions and the new innovators come and disrupt them. So if you think about it from the perspective of the talented people often go to where the most innovation is occurring, then you've got a lot of these old institutions that have a lot of really talented people that have been there for a while that would be a huge benefit to have in the crypto space, but they hesitate to enter it because there isn't regulatory clarity, because I'm not able to go in and start a company and know that the SEC isn't going to come knocking in a couple of years saying, hey, guess what? Everything you just did is for naught because – we're not going to tell you. Like, and that's what's happening. It's like, we're, they're just like, you know, hey, uh, we're, we're here. We want, we're going to find you. We, we want you to shut everything down. And you're like, okay, why? And, th- and then they say, well, um, you know, we don't have to tell you, but, but you're in the wrong. And we'll, we'll, let's settle. And you know, to your point, in order for us to kind of force their hand, we have to have people willing to go to court and willing to get actual, you know, judgments made about the stances that they're trying to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, it's it's sad, but true. But that's such an expensive and time consuming effort to get something all the way to court that it's just like, um, not worth it for or just something that a lot of people really, you know, don't want to put put themselves through. They These are people that want to just innovate and, and work on their projects, not pay, you know, all kinds of money to lawyers to go fight with other lawyers. You know, it's just a, a waste. Um, they could be easily solved with some obvious guidance because most of these companies would would just follow it and and uh, you know go after the fraudsters sure that are stealing and acting you know acting against the you know the the general person but just going after someone for having an unregistered security when there's no way there's no way to register a security with the SEC and have it work in this ecosystem like uh, if it's registered it has to sell on a stock exchange and what stock exchange takes holds crypto and sells it like uh, you know the way that Coinbase does no one's going to be as good as Coinbase at that or you know or a DeFi there's no you know no way that, that those DeFi protocols could uh, you know in any way happen on a on a stock exchange exchange. So um, it just going to move people out of America, sadly, like it's not going to stop the activity. People would just get better VPNs. Um, Totally. And and to your point, people want to be in regulatory environments that are the most friendly. You want to go and you want to 
innovate in places that foster innovation. And I forgot who, who uh, what podcast I was listening to talk about this, but they were saying that even America is becoming too constrained as to their approach to innovation and that the future of innovation is going to be on the internet. Like, you know, I, I work for a company, work with a company called Huddle. They're doing a lot of amazing things with remote work and fractional talent. And like their whole hypothesis is that the future is going to be fractional. The future is going to be remote and fractional. And with that in mind, you start to think about, okay, what jurisdiction can I live in that's going to allow me the most autonomy to be fractional and, and provide services over the internet? Because if I can take a technology like something that Huddle's building and I can be this individual who can work from anywhere, then I, I start to question, you know, is, is New York City the most advantageous place for me to live or would I be better off in, in Caymans? Uh, you know, and start thinking about all the different ways that technology, innovation, and the ability to work from anywhere is going to actually cause the, the movement of people and the, the movement of companies. And, and you know, at the end of the day, we've got to live lives in a physical world. So you might be able to work remote, but you still need to eat food and, you know, incorporate a business somewhere. And, you know, I've got a lot of people that, uh, you know, are probably going to listen and say, well, what about DAOs? And, they, you know, we, we can go on for a whole episode on DAOs and, like, what, you know, what, what that actually means and, and you, know, you physically being in a place and having a and being a part of a DAO, well, maybe that makes you part of a partnership. And like DAO could just be another way of saying partnership because that's what governments default to if there's a group of people conducting an activity. So you know, it, it's one of those things where you want to be in a place that is the most allows for the most innovation and the most flexibility. And if the United States, and, and what you know, somewhat counterintuitive is that innovation isn't. Or, or freedom isn't you're able to do anything. And, and I, you know, one of, one of the people that I listen to on a somewhat frequent basis, his name is Jordan Peterson, really you know, fascinating oh, guy. Yeah. And, and the example that he gives is, you know, he ran this experiment in class where he said, all right, you know, like, you know, let's talk about freedom. You know, you're totally free. What do you do now? And, and everyone sat there and just said, uh, like, I don't know. And he's like, exactly. Like, you don't want total freedom. Like, total freedom doesn't make any sense because you're just kind of like a ship without a sail. You're, you're sorry, a ship without a rudder. Uh, he said, what you need are rules in place that foster self-expression, rules in place that allow you to, you know, do as much as possible, which is why I am so, like, I'm, you know, very patriotic when it comes to America because I don't think people realize how, you know, great we do have it here from, like, a, a, just an overall standpoint. But, when, like, the reason that is is because our laws are structured in such a way that allows for people to be themselves as long as it doesn't harm others. So you take that concept and apply it to crypto, and you look at the regulations that we have right now that are just these abstract things you, you've got you've got people that are sitting there kind of like uh like what do i do uh versus you know cr actually creating these these rules that are not over cumbersome that are not too overbearing uh and allowing people to actually innovate in a structured way mm-hmm Oh, so well said, Sam. <laughs> As you're talking, I'm just thinking how lucky I am to have you working with, <laughs> to have you to work with and talk about these things too. Oh, it's, um, it's been great. I've loved it. So it's been a, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> All right, let's move to the next topic, the Virginia legislation. So they passed uh, passed a bill. I don't think it's all the way through. It still needs another vote, but uh, it's gonna allow banks to to custody crypto assets. So what 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 do you think of that? 
So, I mean, it's not like super innovative. I, I wouldn't say, you know, the OCC has already come out with those letters saying that, you know, there's certain things that, that banks can do or, you know, should be allowed to do. Um, but it, 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 that, that's at a federal level. And I think what people might not understand is that there are banks that the way that banking works is that you can get chartered at a state level or you can go for a federal charter and the federal charter allows you to operate, you know, nationally. Uh, so, you know, for smaller banks, Virginia could, you know, be, be a good place to, to go and, and start. I don't know if it's going to be that attractive, though. You know, I, I think it's great. It's awesome that you've got a legislature thinking about this kind of stuff and trying to be innovative. I don't know if it's actually going to be a game changer in the way that it might have been, you know, prior to 2021 when those letters were issued. Yeah. Because they can do it in Wyoming. The only thing is that I think could be a big deal with this is that uh, in what the Wyoming Chartered Bank, you can't re, uh, rehypothecate, whereas this one doesn't. I don't think has any restrictions on that. So it might be a really desirable thing for hedge funds to to park their crypto assets there and trade the shit out of them. <laughs> can you? Can you? Uh, I think that's a great point. Could you like go dive into rehypothecation? Um, well, it just means you can basically like, uh, you can f- fractionalize it. So it's what we were saying earlier about the gold, like, uh, and the trading on it, like you can have, or, or our dollars, you know, you have one thing at the bank and they can, they can lend it out against it, um, you know, up to 10 times. Whereas, uh, in Wyoming, the rule on the banks is that you have to hold it one-to-one, like you can't, you can't lend against it. Um, so the exchanges that are, that are set up using the Wyoming bank model, they, they hold the people's crypto there and they don't lend against it. It's just held there and they have, you know, whatever security in place. But this one, I, I don't know. And I may, I might be totally off base that there, there is something in the bill that, that forbids that. But if there's not, and they can treat it like they're, you know, like they do their dollars that they hold in reserve, um, it, it could open some interesting business opportunities for, for trading it out. And, uh, um, yeah. So I got an interesting question that, that just came up with what you said, and I don't know, you, you might not have an, an answer to this because, like, we're not running banks. But well, when when we say that the assets are held at the bank in Wyoming, you know, in the traditional sense of gold, that makes a lot of sense. But with, with blockchains, cryptocurrency doesn't actually leave the chain. So is it required that the private key exists at that location? Yeah, I don't know either, but I think it's probably a multi-sig situation where the bank has a key um, to it. And, yeah. and do most of the keys, keys need to be within the confines of Wyoming, or is it just like that business needs to be incorporated? No, you just... You just say there, say it's in Wyoming, and then it's there. Gotcha. Um, yeah, on 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 a piece of paper, and you can do that with like uh, you know the jurisdiction clause. Like we're going to follow the rules of Wyoming for this contract, and then uh, those those rules apply to it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, but for this, uh, and I was thinking about it too, like I used to work at TD bank in Canada and, 
at one point, TD bought Canada Trust, and I started working there a few years after that happened. And the amount of headache that that caused to their like, they were operating on a 1976 MS DOS based um, database system, and they were rewriting like you know nice user interfaces. But when I first got there, we were still, and, and also I worked at TD Ameritrade, like the trade the the discount brokerage, um, and everything was on this DOS computer, so you'd have to type it in. It took me a long time to like really learn how to use it. But then once you get fast at it, it was kind of fun. But uh, it, did, it didn't have like the web-based um, overlay. But I, I suspect they are still on that system and they just have a nice way to, to display it. But how are they going to move from like if, it, if it, there's no way that we can ever get rid of the dollar for a CBDC or something like that without completely overhauling these banks because they're not like so it's it's an, it's not going to be able to happen easily, which thank God, you know. But uh, but yeah, for, uh, I think for this for this Virginia thing though, you're right. It's it's not like a huge deal. It's just the banks will will probably be they're able to hold keys for it, and it probably will. Um, I think this will be the basis of the, so for the FDIC insurance too. That's been a big reason why. Uh, the spot ETF hasn't been approved or it's been cited as one of the reasons anyway that there's no good storage solutions for it. Um, but now if a bank is holding it, I think that that, that might be you know a step in the, the right direction for, for getting one of those. And then the, we'll, we'll just quickly wrap up here. I know uh, it's getting late, but uh, what did you think of that that um, EU proposal that was had the environmental language, the Mika proposal that was going to um, ban ban anything that was bad for the environment? <laughs> I, I think that I think that Europe. I, I think in general, just the green narrative is one that has just gotten so totally politicized. I mean, like, I'm saying the obvious here, but I'm a huge fan of nuclear energy. I think that nuclear energy is just a, a fantastic alternative to a lot of different uh, problems that we have environmentally. I, I, I think that solar and wind get way too much airtime because they're more visual. Like when I think about like the visual images that I get when I think about like Solar is, is positive, you know, and this is great marketing on the on the part of solar and other renewables companies. Uh, but I think about wind; it's like, oh, wind's natural, or even like hydro; it's like water, and how great. You know, I think of nuclear, and I think of Chernobyl, and it's like that the nuclear disaster. But in reality, the amount of like resources that we need to extract to you know build solar panels, or the amount of like resources that go into wind turbines, or the amount of birds that get killed by wind turbines every year. I mean, it's just it, it, what what gets missed in that conversation is yeah, we're using a energy source that is ridiculously sustainable and, and you know naturally occurring. But what do we need to do to actually harness that energy source? And I think that nuclear serves a really incredible alternative to that in that what actually needs to get used to build a nuclear power plant and then the waste that it produces is a significantly less versus the power that you get. Because like whenever you think about these things, you've got to think about what is the reward and what does that re reward cost me? And I think that the reward that we get from nuclear significantly outweighs the reward that we get from the expense of solar and wind. And that's over like a long period of time. So, you know, I, I think that the whole narrative is, is a little twisted. I think that 
taking that conversation into the cryptocurrency realm, you think about proof of work Bitcoin mining and, you know, the sacred thing in Bitcoin is proof of work. And, you know, there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But primarily, you've got to think about what is the electrical, the electrical cost of proof of work actually getting us? Well, it gets us a peer-to-peer permissionless financial system. All right, so is that worth it? Is that actually worth having for the electricity cost that we're incurring? And for you know a thousand reasons that we've you know touched on some of them, I believe yes, you believe yes, but there's people out there who only see who come at this from the narrative of electricity is bad or you know that the coal is bad or gas is bad, and all they can think about is that you know we're using a lot of electricity to create this dumb thing called Bitcoin. And it's like, you don't actually understand first off where the electricity is coming from. Is Bitcoin being primarily mined by oil and gas or because of the economics of it, we're actually going after resources that are just being wasted. Like, you know, I I love the fact that there are Bitcoin miners using gas flares to mine Bitcoin. I love the fact that Bitcoin miners are are using their mining rigs to stabilize grids because, you know, you dive into the, the power industry and like the actual energy industry in the United States. And what you find is a lot of wasted energy. And you find that in a lot of different areas, primarily because a lot of the places that energy gets created doesn't actually use all the energy that gets created. So, you know, you've got Bitcoin miners coming in and taking up that excess electricity because the way that the mining mathematics work is electricity and equipment are my costs. And then the price of Bitcoin is going to be my profit. So I want to find like, the way that I can maximize profit in that equation is I can either get the price of Bitcoin to increase, which miners really can't control. What they can control is the cost of equipment and the amount that they pay for electricity. So if I'm going to run a profitable business, I want to find the cheapest electricity anywhere in the world. The way that I find the cheapest electricity is I find out where supply greatly outstrips demand because that's where electricity is going to be the cheapest. So, you know, you have these narratives being spun around, you know, the environmental concerns around Bitcoin or, or other proof of work networks. And it's, it's something that just is, is in, stated without actual research being done, which I, I think is a, is a shame. And I, I would love to hear what, what your th- thoughts are on it. Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree with what you said there. And, uh, you know, all for the longest time, all that mining was happening over in China. And then, you know, China banned it and they came over and, you know, they landed in Texas or in Wyoming or, you know, places in in the U.S. And and then Nick Carter put out that that great video showing how it was using the flares. And uh, I had no idea of it. Like that was my first, you know, my first learning of it. And it was gl- I was really glad to see what's going on but what's interesting I think is that it's just going to keep driving more and more innovation like as Bitcoin becomes worth more and more and uh, you know more people try and just find the best energy or the cheapest energy the uh, I hope I've seen and and you know what's going on with the volcano bonds like that is just incredible and uh and so yeah I, I think it's finally like so far there hasn't been a a real reason for people to change the like we know that the way that things are happening and you know the the way that drilling and oil and our reliance on oil is unsustainable or at least that's what you know that's what's been said uh 
there's a problem with that, sure. Like, and you know, I, I love my lifestyle. I don't want to give up anything. So it's like, okay, we have to innovate of how can we live like this and and do it without wrecking or harming the environment so much. And uh, you know, there's really not been unless unless we went to some you know, silly carbon system that could really, uh, you know, also work like the CBDC type thing, like really uh, be corrupt, you know, or it has a big propensity to be corrupt. But unless there's a, there's either got to be a motivation for profit or, well, there has to be motivation for profit and putting a fine in place makes, you know, is a disincentive. So it's better to be incentivized rather than work to avoid a disincentive, like, uh, you know, the find pleasure or avoid pain um, kind of thing. So it's like to, to find better and cheaper ways to, to mine Bitcoin is probably what's going to drive us into this next, like, you know, uh, maybe too nuclear or, or whatever the next thing with energy is. Um, and so I, uh, I don't know that much about it. So I feel a little, a little hesitant to talk about it, but I was listening to a video, um, by Greg Braden, uh, not sure if you're familiar with, with him or not. Have you? No, I'm um, not, but. I'll, I'll send you some of his stuff. You got to check him out. But uh, he, he had cited a study done by NASDAQ that said um, that they, NASDAQ analyzed the overall um, terawatt hours of the global banking system and found that that was 263.72 terawatt hours. And that included, that didn't include gas, like that didn't include people driving to work or, you know, it probably missed a lot of things, but it included like the, the ATMs or like the, the various electricity costs of running the banks. And, uh, and then they they did the same thing with, with the Bitcoin mining and found it to be half. Like they found it was, um, what was it? 113.89 terawatt hours. So, yeah. you know, if it, Bitcoin's only half the banks and what it creates is, you know, this currency that, that can't be, you know, manipulated or it's, it, it gives basically it's a chance for freedom. And it doesn't. And because of that 21 million cap, you know, it doesn't go down. So like our energy that we expend on whatever we're doing, if we're getting Bitcoin in return, that's, you know, an, uh, an asset that's going to hopefully keep or go go up in its purchasing power. And the dollars that, that you know, if we work for, for those, they, they just lose their purchasing power over time. So, you know, I, as we both said, like, I think the energy, it's a really great use of energy right now. So, well, that, yeah. that's, that's a really, it's an interesting point. You're just basically saying that the investment of energy into creating dollars is is much better spent investing in Bitcoin because the actual utility of that object over a period of time remains constant or increases versus something that decreases, which I, is a point that I've never I, I haven't actually like thought of or articulated. So I, I think it's a great one. Oh, cool. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Sam, where can, where can people find you? What's your Twitter handle? <laughs> so my, my Twitter handle is that's awkward. So it's a play on my last name, but it's, uh, that's, and then A-U-C-H-W-A-R-D. Awesome. And, uh, and thank you so much for, for taking the time to do the podcast today and, uh, all your, all your wonderful insights. I really appreciate having the, the chance to speak with you about this. <laughs> Yeah, it's been great, Sasha. And I've loved collaborating with you on a bunch of stuff, and I'm I'm looking forward to continuing to do so. So this has been awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks and have fun at South by Southwest tonight. (laughs) Oh, well.